0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin.
1: Your mission is ours. I used to tell folks that you only become a general or an admiral if the troops want you to be a general or an admiral. Uh, You have to earn the respect of the troops, you have to earn the respect of the troops and, and of your peers, frankly. Because if you don't, then as you begin to climb the ladder, so to speak, if you haven't earned their respect, if they don't trust you, and they don't, and you can't, they don't feel like they can rely on you, then you're just not going to be successful. So the Bin Laden raid. What
2: were you sitting there thinking at that moment when we were telling you we think we know where he is? <laughs> yeah,
1: you know, we'd seen a lot of leads, as you know, on bin Laden over the years. So it's not that I was dismissive, but I didn't get overly pumped up because, as you know, we okay. were still grappling with, is it really him? Everybody wanted to do what was right for the country. There was no ego here. This was not about, hey, let's make this uh, a CIA only. I think Americans ought to be proud of the fact that the organizations were more concerned, not about our own legacy, but about let's get this done right for America.
2: When the president was leaning heavily toward the Helleborn raid. That he asked you in the Situation Room, can you do this? And I think 99.9% of the people who would have been asked that question would have said, absolutely, sir, we'll get this done. You said, I don't
1: know. I was not gonna tell the president of the United States something that I wasn't certain of. And if it turns out I wasn't the best option, then I didn't want us going forward. So when the president said, can you do this? I mean, I had to be honest. I don't know. (laughs) You know, let me call the SEALs in. Let me get the helo pilots in. Let's go rehearse this thing. And then I'll come back and tell you whether or not we can do it. And uh, and after three weeks, when we had pulled everybody together, when we had rehearsed it, then I was pretty confident we could do the mission. Bill
2: McRaven is a retired four-star Navy admiral. His last assignment in the military was as the commander of the Special Operations Command, the organization that oversees all special operations components of each branch of the U.S. military. During his long career, Bill oversaw many operations, including Neptune's Spear, the operation that killed al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden. I had a chance to sit down with Bill to discuss his career, as well as his new book, Sea Stories, My Life in Special Operations. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our new exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters.
0: Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
2: Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in.
0: Oh, burger time.
2: So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you.
1: I could stay here forever.
2: Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Bill, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is great to see you and it is great to have you with us.
1: Thanks, great to be here.
2: So you have a new book, Sea Stories, My Life in Special Operations. It is absolutely terrific. Well, thank you. People should go buy it. And I want to ask you all sorts of questions about it. Maybe the place to start is why did you write it?
1: Yeah, you know, I actually started writing the stories years ago uh, for my kids. My, I've got two boys and my daughter, and, uh, you know, they kind of grew up with me as a SEAL, but I didn't talk a lot about what I did. And, uh, and so as, as they got older, uh, at, at certain points in time, they said, Dad, you know, we, we, we really don't know what you did. And uh, I said, well, I'll, I'll start putting some things down in writing. And so, you know, on the weekends, every once in a while, I'd I'd write a little story here or there. And uh, and then when Make Your Bed became kind of commercially successful, one of the other small books I did, the uh, publisher came back to me and said, well, you got anything else? I said, well, you know, I'm, I've got this kind of, kind of stories of my life, if you will, and, uh, and I'm happy to, to put those forward. So that's kind of how it all started.
2: Was it a bit of a difficult decision to do this, given the ethos of the special forces, just like the ethos of the intelligence community, which is – you don't talk about what you do
1: yeah it, it wasn't because you know my position has always been for for all those guys that are writing books i said look i have no problem with people writing books i have no problems with the movies as long as you do a couple things one you take it through the process and as you know when you do a book like this and it took me almost 5 months to get through the security review process it took me four. so yeah so you have to take you have to go through the process but also my hope and my expectations is you're going to talk about things about, you know, the heroism and the bravery and the sacrifice. All of us that probably went into our respective businesses at some point in time read a book that inspired us. So, you know, I mean, I remember seeing the movie The Green Beret with John Wayne when I was young, and I thought, well, I want to be a Special Forces guy. Uh, And then I, I read books about commando operations in World War II. And so books and movies are important to, again, I think to inspire young men and women to come into the military. Uh, so I don't really have a problem with them, again, on the security side, as long as you know, what, you're, what you're laying out is, is clear through the right, Pentagon. Right. I think there's another
2: issue, too. So I agree 100%. I wrote my book with the idea of encouraging young men and young women to think about the intelligence community. But there's also another thing that I think is really important, and that is that America is the only country in the world where former senior officials write books. And it's a really important piece of history.
1: It is, and it's an Absolutely. input.
2: It's an input into history, right? And I don't think we think enough
1: about that. No, I, I, that's a great perspective,
2: Bill. The book starts in 1960 in France. Tell us about that.
1: So, you know, I tell folks, I said that it is. You know, people call it a memoir, and and I guess it is a memoir because I, I talk about you know the the Bin Laden raid and the the rescue of Captain Phillips and the capture of Saddam Hussein. But really, what I hope people take away from the book is that it really is about these great soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, and civilians that I had a chance to work with in my 37-year career. But it does begin in 1960. uh, So I'm a a young boy. My father is stationed in Fontainebleau, France. He's part of the Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe. And as a young kid, uh, my parents would, every Friday, they'd go to the officer's club. And, of course, this is where that generation, that kind of greatest generation, certainly my dad had all these fighter pilot buddies, and as they would go to the officer's club, you know, I would kind of sit at their knee and listen to these stories. And they were stories of World War II. Um, and, and they were stories that were, again, they were uplifting. They were inspiring. They were poignant, sometimes a little unbelievable. Mm-hmm. But they were great stories. And I think this generation, uh, this greatest generation, as we call them, that grew up as children of World War I, uh, went through the Great Depression, then all the men went off to World War II. I think they use these stories to kind of deal with the challenges of life. And at one point in time, many, many years later, my father said to me, Bill, life is all how you remember it. And so the stories in, these book, in this book are kind of how I remember mm-hmm. it. Yeah, that's great. So was it your father who motivated you to join the military? It, it was. I think it was my father, my father's friends, my mother. You know, I grew up in a military family. So, Dad, uh, obviously, a World War II fighter pilot, a little bit of time in Korea. He retired in 1967. But all those, all of his retired friends were were also military. So, almost all my career, I was kind of part and parcel to this, and I liked the camaraderie. Uh, I loved living on bases. You know, I, I liked spending time around men and women that were dedicated to something that they felt was noble and honorable. And and so, frankly, it was an easy decision for me to to go into the military. Uh, when I, I graduated from high school and then went off to ROTC, Naval ROTC at the University of Texas, and and never regretted a second of it.
2: Did you want to make it a, a career from the very beginning,
1: or did that only come later? Yeah, I think it only came later. Uh, you know, initially, when I when I graduated from ROTC, I wanted to go to basic SEAL training, and a lot of this was just to, to test myself. I mean, I was I was always a, a pretty good athlete, and uh, and I knew the SEAL training was some of the toughest military training, and I think like you know any young man of my age. I wanted to challenge myself to see if I could make it through. Back then, and I graduated in in 1977, back then, you know, the Navy SEALs had no career path, really. So there were only two Navy captains, kind of colonel equivalents, uh, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast. So a good career uh, as a Navy SEAL back starting in 1977 was if you became a SEAL platoon commander as a lieutenant. And you really didn't think much beyond that. If you ever became a commanding officer, well, my goodness, you had had a great career, but, of course, as times changed, uh, 9-11 happens, the community changed, it morphed, it grew, and I was fortunate enough to grow r- along with it.
2: So the SEAL training that we were just talking about, you obviously made it through. What was that like for you?
1: Well, it lived up to, uh, to, to its marquee about being uh, exceedingly tough training. Uh, you know, it's SEAL training broken down. It's six months long out in Coronado, California, broken down into three phases. But it really is, uh, I think, more mental than physical. Uh, Now, again, your day is long. You start at the crack of dawn. You do about two hours of calisthenics. You have a short break, and then you go for a four-mile soft sand run. Then you come back. You have a short break. Then you go for a two- two or three-mile open-ocean swim. Then you run to chow. Sounds pretty physical to me. (laughs) But each evolution or each individual evolution, as we call it, every event, is not terribly difficult in and of itself. The hard part, of course, is you put them all together, and you are constantly being harassed by the instructors Uh, you're constantly cold, wet, and miserable throughout the course of the day and the weeks and the months. That is really, I think, what tries on guys. And then, of course, we have a special week called Hell Week, um, about the eighth or ninth week of the first phase of training, where it's six days of no sleep, constantly being kept cold, wet, and miserable to see if you're, you know, physically and mentally tough enough to to be a SEAL. The washout rate's high. The washout rate is high. It's about 75% for enlisted guys, about 50% for officers.
2: What's the difference between those who make it and those who don't?
1: Yeah, it's actually pretty simple. You just don't quit. When I tell folks that, particularly the young kids that are getting ready to go through, and I've I've had a lot of a lot of young fellows come to me and they, they want to know, well, do I need to run more? You know, do I need to swim more? Do I need to be able to do more pull-ups? And generally the answer is no, no, and no. And then I tell them, look, there's only one thing you have to do to get through SEAL training. Don't quit. I remember this kid saying, oh, you no, know, sir, I get that. I said, no, I'm not sure you do. There's going to be 100 opportunities in the course of a day to quit. You're going to get tired. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to be freezing, and you're going to want to quit. Those that make it through just don't quit. And that becomes a mantra, frankly, for the rest of your career because there will be a lot of opportunities in your career to quit. There will be times in your career when things are physically tough, but there will be times when you mean I'm moving my family again? And again, and again, or you're working with a boss you don't like, or things go bad in combat. Uh, So while you learn to get through the physical toughness of SEAL training, I think the don't quit mantra, the never ring the bell, as we say, Mm -hmm. is really more about life in general and, and certainly a career in the teams.
2: Bill, you rose through the ranks all the way to be the commander of the Special Operations Command. To what do you attribute your success as a military officer?
1: Yeah, I think any officer that gets to the rank of general, um, I used to tell folks that you only become a general or an admiral if the troops want you to be a general or an admiral. Uh, you have to earn the respect of the troops. You have to earn the respect of the troops and uh, and of your peers, frankly, um, because if you don't, uh, then as you begin to climb the ladder, so to speak, uh, if you haven't earned their respect, if they don't trust you, and they don't, and you can't, they don't feel like they can rely on you. Then you're just not going to be successful. So very early on, you realize that you know you've got to be able to uh, you know work hard. You set high standards for the troops. You hold the troops accountable. You do things that are moral, legal, and ethical. You build a certain trust, and you build a reputation with the troops, and and that really I think carries you through the ranks. Now I was also very very fortunate. And if you read the book, uh, you will see that there were a number of times where things in my career did not go well. And I was fortunate to have, you know, great senior officers who also looked at me and they saw something in me and said, you know, you made a mistake here. Uh, Mistakes happen, but uh, we're going to kind of keep you on the path because we think you've got something to offer. But I would also contend that that something to offer was a result of all my time that I spent with the troops and that, uh, that they recognized that there was a you know, uh, maybe something that was worthwhile to, to continue to advance forward.
2: So, Bill, you're known inside the military and outside the military as a great leader. Two questions. Do you have a leadership philosophy that you talk about, and do you think it's applicable outside the military?
1: Yeah, I, I do. Uh, I mean, it, it's always about being a servant leader, and and that's a term that we throw around a little bit in the military, but you have to really kind of think through it. I mean, a servant leader means that my responsibility is again, it's to the mission and it's to the troops, um, and and sometimes those are uh, can can be at odds with each other. Uh, but if you think about taking care of the troops, uh, I, I learned early on, yeah, you know, this is not about you know give them giving them extra liberty and, and patting them on the back every time. It really is an elite organization about saying, look, we are going to be an elite organization. That means we are going to have exceptionally high standards. And I'm going to hold you accountable to meet those high standards. Now, I'm going to give you the resources to do that. I'm going to give you the training to do that. I'm going to give you the support. I'm going to give you all the things to be successful. But you are going to have to push yourself hard, and I will push myself as hard, if not harder, to help you do that. Because if it ever becomes about you, then you're probably not the the leader the troops need. And I did find that learning to be a servant leader in the military certainly helped me when I retired and I transitioned to be the chancellor of the University of Texas system. It's the same thing. You know, it's not about the chancellor. It's not about the president of the universities. It's about the students and the faculty and, you know, give them the opportunity to succeed and and you'll be successful along with them. So, Bill, who
2: was the best leader or leaders that you ever served under?
1: <laughs> well, I was fortunate to have a lot of them. Uh, you know, in my in my early days, uh, I had some some very interesting uh, Seal commanders. There was uh, Captain Ted Grabowski, again a, a Seal uh, Vietnam vet. Uh, Captain Bob Mabry, Captain Tim Holden. So I had a lot of great Seal mentors early. You know, after 9/11, we became joint, and I was fortunate, of course, to work with uh, General Del Daly very early on when I was a flag officer. Uh, of course, Stan McChrystal, one of one of the great generals of our time. Dave Petraeus, Ray Odierno, uh, Marty Dempsey. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And Admiral Mike Mullen, as you well know. Uh, and Admiral Eric Olson, uh, one of my uh, one of my real heroes, to be honest with you, and and Admiral Joe McGuire and I were were very close, along with Joe Kernan. so, I was really blessed in my career to have some remarkable uh, leaders uh, that that I kind of patterned my leadership after. Uh, and and both you know the Army, Navy, and the Air Force again. I, I, I could go on in the Air Force and the Marine Corps as well. So um, this is the the great thing about the military is you don't have to look very far to find somebody that uh, is worth emulating. So let's jump back to the book.
2: Okay. And let me ask you about some of the stories in the book. And the first is the capture of Saddam Hussein. So walk us through that. Walk us through your role, walk us through the role of your soldiers.
1: Yeah, so this was uh December of '03. I had gotten to Iraq in October of 03. And of course we were we were looking for Saddam and uh, you know we had we, we were working with the agency and and had the uh, you know, we had our own military intelligence folks out there, and we were always having leads, you know, on Saddam Hussein. He's here, he's there. And, of course, the leads rarely panned out. Um, and it was a little bit like he was a ghost. Well, as I tell him the story, the, the, I think the story starts off, and I have actually gotten on a plane heading down from Baghdad to Qatar. I've got a meeting with General Abizade. And I had been briefed the night before, I think it was, by a young noncommissioned officer from our Army Special Operations Unit. And he'd kind of given me some sense that – hey, you know, if we can get to this guy, then maybe we will find Saddam. Now, I'd heard that story a lot of times before, but for some reason this young NCO was, was adamant that, you know, if you connected these dots, all this would happen. Well, I get on the plane and I'm heading, heading to, uh, to Qatar from Baghdad, and all of a sudden it was one of these kind of, you know, a little bit of an epiphany like, oh, my goodness, I, I think this kid's right. So I go to my aide and I said, we've got to turn the plane around. We're going to get Saddam tonight. And, and the aide looks at me like, I'm sorry, sir, what? Did, did somebody call you? What's going on? I said, no, but I think tonight's the night. Well, we can't because we're in, in Iraqi airspace. We actually have to go to Qatar. He strong arms some Air Force captain, and we get on another plane and come right back to uh, Baghdad. We get back into Baghdad, and the Army Special Operations Unit, uh, led by Lieutenant Colonel Bill Coltrip, is uh, is out hunting, and they have uh, they have found a lead. And as we're watching it on the overhead uh, surveillance, uh, I realize that the uh, that they're calling in uh, from another location. We have to swing the ISR to another location. And I hear over the radio, jackpot, which, of course, as you know, is the, is the code word for we got him. Now, I didn't know whether jackpot meant we got the source we were looking for or we got Saddam. So I get on the, on the radio with Bill Coltrip, and I said, uh, okay, Bill, is this little jackpot or big jackpot? There's a pause, and he goes, sir, it's big jackpot. Said okay, so again we're all kind of fairly calm because again we'd had jackpots before, so to speak. But uh, they get him back to Tikrit, and then uh, you know an hour or so later he comes into Baghdad, and uh, and and sure enough, it was it was Saddam Hussein. But you know, one of the things I tell folks about spending time with Saddam, and I held on to him for about the next thirty days, and every day I would go in to make sure that we were we were taking good care of him because it really was my responsibility to to make sure we did that, and uh, never talked to him, but would check on him. And, uh, and an interesting thing happened. You know, when, when we first captured him, he was arrogant. He was pompous. Uh, I remember the first day when uh, Ambassador Bremer and Rick Sanchez came over and they brought some of the Iraqi officials. I mean, Saddam was still in charge and, uh, and he was dismissive of folks. Well, as we made sure that none of those people were around again and, and that uh, he didn't have his generals and he didn't have his handmaidens and he didn't have his palaces he really just became a pathetic old man. Mm. And I tell folks, I'm not sure I told it in the story, but I said, you know, you contrast that with a Nelson Mandela Mm. who spent almost 30 years incarcerated. And because Nelson Mandela had this remarkable strength of character, this remarkable integrity, he kind of came out from 30 years uh, as strong, if not stronger. Saddam Hussein, within a matter of of 10 days or so, was just a shell of himself because he had no integrity. He He was a pathetic old man on the inside. But it, but it was uh, good to be part of that.
2: We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Bill McCraven.
0: Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are.
2: The rescue of Captain Richard Phillips. Right. So, I don't think most people know who Richard Phillips is. So, maybe the place to start is who was he, yeah. what happened to him, and how
1: was he rescued? So, uh, Richard Phillips was the captain uh, of the Marisk, Alabama, uh, an American-flagged um, a cargo vessel that was uh, making its way off the coast of Somalia when Somali pirates uh, came and, and boarded the ship. and. Of course, they later made a movie out of it starring Tom Hanks. Um, but uh, I am in Afghanistan at the time, and, uh, and we get the call from, uh, from the Pentagon that uh, this American vessel has been taken, and, uh, and they have moved Captain Phillips from the vessel onto this lifeboat, and they're taking the lifeboat back to Somalia. Well, we knew quickly that if he got back to Somalia, to the mainland of Somalia, it was going to be very difficult to rescue him. So immediately we do as we always did. As you recall, we, we held, held a video teleconference with the White House, with the, the joint staff and with the CENTCOM and, and, uh, and the agency and State Department. And we, made and we the president, made a very quick decision to go ahead and send in the SEALs uh, to, to link up with some Navy ships that came their way. So we, uh, we did a long-range uh, flight from uh, Virginia Beach, uh, came, SEALs parachuted into the waters off Somalia. In the meantime, we had surrounded the small lifeboat, and uh, we're having a dialogue with the, the pirates, trying to convince them that, look, the best thing to do would be just to let Captain Phillips go. Kind of no harm, no foul. Uh, and, oh, by the way, you're not getting to Somalia. Uh, we're not going to let that happen. Well, as the couple of days went by, there were some tense moments uh, at the time. But, of course, they ran out of gas. Uh, we're getting to the point where they were running out of gas in the lifeboat. So, uh, you know, I reached out. There was Captain Scott Moore, who was the SEAL that came in to run from the on scene. So Scott and I are conversing every day. And I think what's interesting for for people today to realize is the distance. I mean, I'm thousands of miles away in Afghanistan, but my situational awareness of what's going on was really pretty good because you've got a Scan Eagle that is a, a drone coming off the ship. I've got high-definition television coming from the ship back to my command center, so I can see everything that's happening. And then, of course, I'm coordinating with Scott uh, Moore uh, on board the the Bainbridge and the Boxer, which was one of the bigger ships make a long story short, uh, we managed to uh, kind of hook the lifeboat up uh, behind the Bainbridge and slowly pull the, mm. uh, the, the pirates in. We had, one of the pirates had gotten off the vessel at some point in time. And uh, as the days went on, uh, we finally kind of brought them in a little bit closer. And, and, of course, the young lieutenant commander and the snipers on the deck of the Bainbridge, they had always had authority that if they sensed that Captain Phillips was in danger uh, and they had a good shot, they could take that. And at a certain point in time, we felt that uh, the pirates were threatening Captain Phillips. They were threatening Captain Phillips. And uh, the SEAL snipers had a good shot and took kind of three simultaneous shots, Uh, some very challenging shots through, you know, a a, a small vessel Mm -hmm. bouncing around in in Mm -hmm. the water uh, through the portholes, managed to take out the pirates and rescue Captain Phillips. Again, a dramatic rescue. But this goes back, Michael, to the the point about the troops. Uh, What I hope people take away from this is these remarkable... In this case, you know, SEALs and actually sailors on board the Bainbridge and the, and the Boxer uh, and some, some great leadership uh, from kind of around the interagency. they really pulled together to, to rescue an American captain taken by pirates. Uh, and, and it is remarkable the way all these folks pull together when the, when the time is needed. So the
2: bin Laden raid. Hmm? Let me ask you some specific questions, maybe about some particular moments And, Bill, the first was the initial meeting in my office in late 2010. We brought you there because the president wanted you briefed on what we knew, what we thought, and he wanted your help in thinking about possible courses of action. I had my team there from the Counterterrorism Center. Mike Vickers was there, the then Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. We walked you through the whole story. What were you sitting there thinking at that moment when we were telling you we think we know where
1: he is <laughs> uh, i was thinking a couple things it's i don't think i've ever been asked that question um a couple things were going through my mind uh, interestingly enough the first thing going through my mind was i'm not going to make this about jsoc uh, i'm not going to make this about you know this is the most important mission and, and we're here to do it we can do it better than anybody because that wasn't going to be the right answer um you know what we wanted to do was Let's figure out the right way to get this guy. If it's not our special operations guys, maybe it is a bombing mission. Maybe it is something else. But the last thing I wanted to leave you or anybody else in that room uh, with the impression of is that, you know, we wanted this mission and, and, and we were the right we'll guys We'll take to it do now. It. We'll take it We'll now. take right. it off. Thanks very much. Not going to do that um, because it just wasn't the right thing to do. Um, so that, that was really kind of my, my first thought was, look, I'm happy to provide you all the advice and counsel you need. But if there are better guys to do this, let the better guys do it. Uh, and, I, you know, I knew you guys had some incredibly talented folks that certainly had the, the ability to do some of this. The other one, however, was, um, you know, we'd seen a lot of leads, as you know, on bin Laden over the years. So it's not that I was dismissive, but I didn't get overly pumped up because, as you know, we yep. were still grappling with, is it really him? Is the pacer bin Laden? Um, we, I knew that. We know, grappled
2: with it right to the end. Of course,
1: right to the very end. Uh, so, I, I would say there were two things. First was, let's make sure we get the, the best options on the table. And if I'm not the best option, I'm okay with that. But then the part two of that was, well, this looks good, but, you know, we'll have to see how this whole thing unfolds. So, I, I don't think I was overly hyped up coming out of the office because I thought, yeah, I've seen things like this before. We'll just have to see where it goes from here.
2: Yeah, you remember that Director Panetta, later Secretary Panetta – and me we had exactly the same attitude yeah. right this isn't about cia <laughs> right. this isn't about cia getting him. this is about let's do the the thing that has the best chance yeah of getting him if it's you, him.
1: you know if, if i can interject there michael because you know you, you bring up this remarkable point and i hope i i bring it out in the book is the the thing that made this team so remarkable this being the cia and special operations team the military team was that everybody wanted to do what was right for the country and and to your point you and leon panetta there was no ego here. This was not about, hey, let's make this uh, a CIA only. This was, and I didn't want to make it, you know, a special operations only mission. We all wanted to do whatever the right, whatever the right thing was. And that, uh, you know, in light of where we thought this mission was going, uh, I think Americans ought to be proud of the fact that the, the organizations were more concerned, you know, not about our own legacy, but about let's get this done right for America.
2: So the second moment I want to ask you about which increased my already deep respect for you, was you'll remember that fairly late in the process, when the president was leaning heavily toward the Helleborn raid, that he asked you in the situation room, can you do this? Right. And I think 99.9% of the people who would have been asked that question would have said, absolutely, sir, we'll get this done. Right. You said, I don't know. I don't know until I exercise it. Right. What was going through your mind when you answered the question that way?
1: Yeah, you know, Actually, the same thing that was going through my mind on the first day we met on this was I was not going to tell the president of the United States something that I wasn't certain of. And if, if it turns out I wasn't the best option, then I didn't want us going forward. And, you know, as you, as you recall, Michael, at that point in time, we hadn't brought the SEALs in yet. Uh, we hadn't brought the helicopter pilots in yet. So we hadn't had a chance to, again, rehearse the plan that I had laid out for the president. So when the president said, "Can you do this?" I mean, I had to be honest. I don't know. <laughs> you know, let me call the seals in. Let me get the helo pilots in. Let's go rehearse this thing, and then I'll come back and tell you whether or not we can do it. And at that, I think the next question the president said asked was, "How long will it take?" I said, "I think it'll take about three weeks." And he said, "Okay, you got three weeks. Come back and talk to me after three weeks." And uh, and after three weeks, when we had pulled everybody together, when we had rehearsed it then I was pretty confident we could do the mission. Yeah,
2: I I think it's a remarkable lesson for any military officer talking to the commander-in-chief, any intelligence officer talking Mm -hmm. to the president, and quite frankly, anybody talking to their boss, right? Uh, Don't spin things. Don't make promises you can't keep. Tell them what you think.
1: Well, while we're on that, um, I'm not sure I I mentioned it in the book, but I have told other people this because I think it is a reflection on you and your personal and professional courage. At one point in time uh, in the discussions as everybody was leaning towards wanting this to be bin Laden, you stood up in, in one of the meetings and, and kind of stopped the conversation and said, Mr. President, if I can, uh, you know, I remember when we were looking at WMD in Iraq and we saw what we wanted to see. We all have to be very careful about thinking this is bin Laden, wanting this to be bin Laden, and seeing what we want to see. And I remember, Michael, thinking that was an incredibly courageous moment because your boss, Leon Panetta, and others sitting around the room were probably going, hey, this is not the time to bring that up, but it was exactly the time to bring that up. And I
2: appreciate it. I I was not particularly popular for saying that, (laughs) but it was the right thing to do. So, Bill, let me ask you a couple questions about the issues of the day. It's probably what you get asked most about when you go out to talk about your book. We've had soldiers in Afghanistan for 18 years now. We have them in Iraq. We have them in Syria. We have them in many places. On the planet and we're at this moment considering a range of options with regard to what to do about what appears to be an Iranian attack on Saudi oil facilities and I don't want to ask you what we should do in each of those cases what I want to ask you is what if what is your standard for putting men and women in uniform in harm's way what conditions have to be met in your mind to do that
1: yeah great question yeah, I teach a class at the, uh, at the LBJ School uh, of Public Affairs and, and at the University of Texas in Austin. And, and we actually do National Security Council uh, simulations. And, and I throw a lot of tough questions and tough problems uh, at the students. And, and I, I start off, the first thing I teach them in the decision process is we have to ask ourselves, both personally and, and certainly as a nation, who are we? I mean, I mean, who are we? If you don't know who you are, then every part of the decision process after that, I, I think, can, uh, can, can be wrong, can be misplaced. But if you start off and you say, look, as a nation, we are national laws. Uh, we have certain values that, that we take uh, very, very seriously. I mean, we have, you know, sacrificed our lives to fight for our values. I mean, we sacrificed our lives against, you know, Nazism and communism and, you know, uh, all of the terrorism, all of the isms out there. Because we value our values more than we value our lives. So who are we? And then as you kind of go down this and you look at the risk of the mission and you look at the risk of the force, there's another piece of this that says, if we take this action, will we be better off? Will we be strategically in a better place? So when we look at something like, you know, what do we do with with Iran's, uh, you know, possibly Iran's attack on on the Saudi oil fields? I think we have to ask ourselves first and foremost, you know, who are we as a nation? Do our values matter? And how do our values play out in this context, and, and what are our priorities? But then, if we take action, if we decide we're going to conduct a strike against Iran, what does that do for us strategically? Does that then escalate the fight that puts us in a position to now have to, to put more young men and women in harm's way? That I don't think that serves anyone well. The reason we went to Afghanistan in the first place after 9-11 was because we were attacked and we felt we had an obligation to go get al-Qaeda's safe havens. That's a pretty good reason to go. Um, but if we're going to go after Iran, or we're going to go after any other country, we're going to put young men and women in harm's way, we better understand exactly what we're doing, why we're asking men and women in uniform and out of uniform that are in the intelligence community and law enforcement and others to sacrifice their lives. We better understand, you know, what it is in terms of supporting our values and whether we we, we will be better off strategically at the end of whatever decision we make. I think those are the the general things we have to look
2: at. And do you think we've gotten that mostly right? Do you think we've had some misses? How how well do you think we've done as a nation in living up to what you just outlined?
1: Yeah, I think we've absolutely had some misses. Um, But I think if you have that framework, uh, you're going to have the answer come out more positive than negative in the long run. If you have no values, if you have no framework for leadership. You, If you don't have priorities that matter, if you're not worried about the, the young men and women, if you're not worried about whether or not we're going to be strategically better off, then I think you have, a, a you know, again, a lot more misses than makes. The other thing I'd, I'd offer is, as you well know, process is important. And one of the other things I teach in my class is we, we talk about the policy coordination committees. So for, the, for your audience, when a, a challenging issue comes up, there's a process within the national kind of security uh, you know, a coordination process where you start at kind of a one-star level where you have great foreign service officers and intel community officers and uh, and Department of Defense folks, and they take a look at the issue, they frame it, they move it up to a deputies committee meeting where you were always in these deputy committee's meetings, and then they move it to a principal's committee meeting, and then they finally bring it to the National Security Council. Well, then you have had the, the opportunity to engage with people that know the issues, that have been living the issues for most of their career, who speak the language, who know the culture, who understand the personalities, and they then provide options to the president, who I don't care who the president is, they're never going to be the smartest man or woman in the room with respect to a particular issue. But at least you're going to provide them advice and counsel that starts from a place uh, of deep experience. I'm afraid if you don't have that process, and if you think as any president that you are probably smart enough to figure out these things on your own, uh, you are going to have a lot more misses than you are makes. So I couldn't agree with you more
2: on the process issue and the misses I've seen both at the national strategic level and the misses that I saw at CIA was almost always because we didn't have everybody in the room who needed to be there. And we didn't have a piece of critical information that would have taken us in a different direction. The process is everything. Um, Bill, I want to ask you two other questions, maybe three other questions. When you look out at the world, what do you worry most about in terms of our national security?
1: Yeah, essentially, when I was uh, the chancellor of the University of Texas, I was asked this question a lot in kind of public forums. Um, and I think you know, people would say, you know, what's your number one national security concern? And I think they always thought I'd say something like, you know, North Korea Iran. And my answer was always the same, K through 12 education. Um, and it wasn't because I was an educator. It's, uh, it is because if we're not teaching the young men and women— in you know, our, our elementary schools, junior high schools, high schools, and then of course in, in higher education. If we're not teaching them uh, you know, different ideas, if we're not teaching them how to think critically, if we're not really instilling them in them an understanding of the Constitution and what our values are, then we won't have people that know how to deal with the national security issues when we need them the most. So I really believe we need to invest in education. Um, and if we invest in the young men and women in this nation, then we will find that the national security issues uh, will, I mean, will be better served by people that are smart, uh, that have, again, traveled around the world, that have have seen different ideas, been exposed to different ideas in different cultures, and had the experience to make the right decisions in national security.
2: Bill, second question. What would you like America to know about uh, the soldiers in uniform in general and special forces in particular?
1: Yeah, you know, I I uh, I often talk about the Special Operations Soldiers, and I say, look, what you need to know is, as much as I love the, you know, the folks that are the soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines that are Special Operations folks, we in SOF are no more courageous, no more heroic, no more patriotic than our conventional soldier counterparts or the folks in the intel community. Um, we are trained differently. We have, you know, different missions to do, but the young men and women that I served with uh, in the military from all branches, special operations, conventional, the young men and women that I served with in the intelligence community, those that came over from law enforcement, uh, you know, this is a remarkable generation of, uh, of people. I, I am, and I think it surprises people. I am the biggest fan of the millennials you'll ever meet. People seem surprised by that uh, because, you know, you think of the millennials as these You know, these entitled, soft kind of snowflakes. This is about me, right? And I'll tell you, as you well know, uh, I'm quick to point out, well, then you've never seen them in a firefight in Afghanistan or you've never seen them, you know, serving in Baghdad. You've never seen them serving in Kabul. Uh, You've never watched them going to school at the University of Texas at El Paso or Rio Grande to make a better life for them. This is a great generation of young men and women. And when you join the military, when you join the intel community or law enforcement um, and you're doing something that is noble, that is honorable, that is something bigger than yourself. I mean, that, that's why they join. And, uh, and, and we are thankful and, and honored to have them in our ranks.
2: Last question, which you're not going to like, but I have to ask. There's a lot of people who would like to see you in political office, <laughs> even running for president. Have you ruled that out forever? Any chance of that down the road? How do you think about that?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I, uh, I don't like politics, but I do like policy. And, and I've told folks, like uh, you know, if the right administration comes along and, they, and I'm asked to help out in a, in a policy capacity, the, that I would be uh, happy to do that. Again, I, I never say never on things, but uh, I can tell you right now I have, I have no plans for politics. Um, I, I actually admire those people that get into it. It's a uh, tough business. It is a very, very tough business. Um, and, again, if, if I can help out uh, folks to, to continue to move America in the right direction, I'm, I'm always happy to do that. Bill?
2: Thank you for joining us. My
1: pleasure, Michael. Thank you. The book
2: is Sea Stories, and the author is Bill McRaven. Thank you. That was Bill McRaven. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.
0: This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio.